Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Welcome to another episode of the Superhumanize podcast, where we delve into the realms of optimizing our physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. I'm your host, Ariana Summer, and today we have a guest whose expertise is at the very frontier of medical science, blending the art of healing with cutting-edge technology. In the spotlight today is Dr. Amy Killen, a maverick in the field of regenerative medicine, redefining our understanding of aging, sexual health, and overall vitality. With a background that pivots from the high-pressure world of emergency medicine to the nuanced, proactive sphere of anti-aging and regenerative therapies, Dr. Killen embodies the spirit of a true medical pioneer. Her journey mirrors the evolution of medicine itself, from reactive to preventative, from treating symptoms to fostering holistic wellness. Dr. Killen's approach is not just about delaying the signs of aging. It's about reinvigorating life at every level. She has a unique talent for merging the latest in stem cell therapy, bioidentical hormones, and lifestyle modifications to craft personalized treatments that are as unique as the individuals she treats. This is medicine that doesn't just heal, but transforms. And in this episode, we're going to dive deep into the science and philosophy behind Dr. Kellen's work. We'll explore how she's using innovative therapies to revolutionize sexual health, how she's challenging the traditional paradigms of aging, and how her work gives hope to anyone seeking to reclaim their vitality and zest for life. So whether you're a biohacking enthusiast like I am, someone passionate about longevity, or simply curious about the future of medicine, this episode is for you. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Amy, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. I am so pleased to be able to talk to you today. I've been following your work for a while, and you're just doing really amazing things in the health longevity space. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. You have a really interesting uh, background. If I'm informed correctly, you actually have been working before what you're doing now in emergency medicine. And what I feel that must have given you is an experience firsthand of the effects of chronic diseases. And I'm curious to learn how this experience has influenced your approach to anti-aging and uh, regenerative therapies. Yeah, I was an ER doctor for 10 years. So I was residency trained and that was, that's, I'm boarded in ER medicine. And it was interesting because at the time I was just so busy taking care of patients and not sleeping and just being in the ER that I didn't really even realize 
what a toll that was taking on me and my physical health and my, my mental health, the stress, the lack of sleep, the, all the things that go with that. And as I started to realize that, uh, I would go to work and I would look out into the, the waiting room and I started seeing that probably 80% of the people who were coming into the ER were also suffering from the same kinds of problems that were to some degree brought on by a poor lifestyle, whether that was stress or diet or exercise related or all of these chronic medical problems, many of them could have been prevented. And so I became very interested in this idea of what if we catch them earlier and what if we use education and more time with people and things like that, instead of having to catch them when it's really too late to do much about it. Absolutely. And the our Western medical care or model, of course, has huge advantages. There's so many great interventions that we can offer. Say you have an accident or a horrific infection and many other cases. However, there really seems to be a total lack still in being preventative. It's still very reactionary. Some people in my circles have even discussed how they would, they approach their doctors to get a certain test. They're of a certain age, maybe in their 50s or 60s. They want to do certain tests just to get a baseline and see if there's anything they need to do to, within their, what the, their lifestyles or any supplementation or other in order to mitigate something that may start to develop. So the doctors ask, are you really sick? Do you have symptoms? And if they say no, then they can't get prescribed whatever the test is there, does that, which is just, it, it just seems so ridiculous. And for people who may not be so well aware of yet what regenerative medicine can offer, could you share your insights on how a, a focus on regenerative medicine could really lead to a paradigm shift in managing chronic diseases, especially in the context of aging? Yeah. So I mean, regenerative medicine classically is talking about using biologics or other things to stimulate your body to repair itself. So that's stem cell therapies, but you can also look at other modalities. You can look, think about light, like red light therapy, or some of these sound shockwave therapy, like some of these other types of treatments, which aren't classically thought of as being regenerative medicine, but it's basically getting your body to change the way that it's responding to a stimuli so that you are repairing yourself faster and better. So I do some cell therapy and I do that as part of my practice, but then I'm also doing all the supportive things that are going to make uh, you healthier without having to have stem cells. So there's two different ways of approaching it. Super. And uh, you mentioned red light therapy. I want to do a deeper dive into that a little uh, later on in the discussion. I'm a big fan of it especially with regards to stem cells, you're actually integrating stem cell therapy with sexual health. And I would love to know from you, what are some of the most significant breakthroughs that you've observed in stem cell therapy for sexual optimization? And how does that contribute to overall well-being? Yeah, I'm a big believer that sexual health is one of the sort of main pillars that is um, supporting us in this longevity quest and this health span quest. And I feel like I go to a lot of conferences and I've gotten to speak at a lot of longevity events and nobody's talking about sexual health. Like it's just not really being discussed. And yet we know that there are pretty strong correlations more in men than women, but still between if you're sexually healthy and sexually active and have a healthy um, relationship with sex, then you will live longer or at least live better. So it's pretty important. So I, I do stem cell injections into the genitalia of both sexes, and some of it's still considered to be pretty experimental. There, There is some research, certainly more in men than women, but 
the, the stem cells, wherever you put them, whether you're putting them in a shoulder or your skin or your hair or sexual organs, they do the same kinds of things. So they're, you're increasing um, healthy blood vessel formation so you get better blood flow to the area. You're helping to send signals to repair the cells that are already there to be healthier versions of themselves, maybe have more youthful action. Um, you're decreasing inflammation, which is really important too, uh, because we know inflammation is a big driver of dysfunction and disease. So stem cells can help with that. So, so they do those kinds of things no matter where you put them. So like in the sexual injections, you know, if you can increase blood flow, um, that's great, especially if that's the main reason why you're having sexual dysfunction. If you can help repair nerves, if you can help repair the, the tissues in the vagina or the penis, we're using these modalities uh, quite a bit. And it can be pretty life-changing. I've had, I've seen it especially in men, actually. I've had several men who had pretty severe um, erectile dysfunction. Nothing was working. That Their urologists were like, you basically will need a prosthesis if you're going to have a penile prosthesis if you want to have sex again. And I've had a few of them where we've done stem cell injections and then we've done shockwave therapy and, and like optimized lifestyle and such. And, and they've been able to start having sex again. And that, you know, that mental shift as well as physical shift is just enormous. It's changed their lives. And I think there it's probably also multi-layered. The, the more superficial layer is this veneer, this sexual veneer that society is imposing on us that you always got to be sexy and sexually functioning. And if you're not, there's something wrong with you and you're not your worth as a human being lower. So that's what we're bombarded with. In our culture, I feel like, and then of course, on a deeper, much deeper and truer level, this is also actually an essential part of being a human being, experiencing life. And then there's, of course, also biological aspects to it. With regards to men, I'm, I'm curious, Amy, I have heard um, over the years that, for example, something like erectile dysfunction is like the cannery in the coal mine with regards to a cardiovascular health. Is this something you can corroborate? Yeah, absolutely. In men, erectile dysfunction, the number one cause of ED is going to be a blood flow issue. And so that's usually either the blood is having a hard time getting to the penis. So that's like atherosclerosis. So plaque is building up in your arteries and that same plaque that builds up in the arteries to the penis also can build up in the arteries to the heart and cause heart attacks or the brain and cause strokes. But the blood vessels that go to the penis are actually smaller than the ones to the heart or the brain. And so we see evidence of plaque earlier in the penis than we do in the heart of the brain. So if you're getting this, getting ED, you always want to get a good cardiovascular workup, get all your cholesterol checked, get your blood, your functional testing done, get your family history, blood pressure, all the things that are going to be risk factors for heart attacks and strokes are also risk factors for ED. 100%. And this is something I don't know about. I'm, I'm really curious to hear based on your expertise. So when you get these stem cell injections, do they actually also take care of the plaque? I don't know. We don't know for sure. I would say probably not. I think that the, the main way that they work, and we've seen this in animal studies when we could look at the tissue itself, is that it's helping to repair the smooth muscles, like in the male, for instance, the smooth muscles in the penis that are supposed to be really elastic and lead to erections. When you get older or if you have too much fat or too much inflammation, those smooth muscle cells can get replaced by fat or scar tissue. And so they lose their elasticity. And so you, can, you can't keep an erection. And so that's one of the most common things. So if we can repair those smooth muscle cells or just increase new blood vessel formation into the area, 
then that's a big win. But certainly injecting stem cells into your penis or your vagina, it's not going to fix the problem that's happening in your entire body. So you have to look at it really holistically. Like what else is going on with your cardiovascular system or with your hormones? That's a big one as well. Are you having hormonal issues, low testosterone in men and women? When women, especially, you look at like low estrogen and progesterone in perimenopause and menopause. So that's a big piece of it. And then there's also the mental, emotional piece of it. There's, sexual health is not ever just one thing or rarely it's one thing. Uh, when you have sexual problems, you're oftentimes multiple things are going on. Yes, understood. And I'm so I'm, I think I'm speaking for probably quite a few in our audience with this question. When particularly if I were a patient of yours and I would come in for treatment for stem cell injections in my lady parts. How would that look like? How do I prepare? How does the actual treatment go? What is their recovery time? What can I expect right afterwards? And the same I would also like to know for a man. And obviously everybody's different, is coming for slightly different issues. But just in general, how does a, such a visit, a procedure, a treatment look like? So we usually will do a phone consult. Most of my patients are traveling in from other places. We have lots of international patients. So we'll do phone con phone consults first, make sure that you're a good candidate and set expectations. And then you, know, you come in with the procedure itself. There's a couple of different ways you can get stem cells. I can get them from you, like from either your fat or from your bone marrow. Those are options. And then we also have the ability to use umbilical cord tissue and amniotic uh, tissue and, and such as well. And that's just going to come in a vial and that's an easier kind of thing. But basically, we depending on what types of cells you're using, we're using, you you can opt to be asleep or you can be awake. It's just a few different little injections. It's not actually very painful. But some people are just like, I don't want a needle. I don't want to be awake when there's a needle in that area. So we have the option of anesthesia as well. But basically, it's just a, it's a few little injections. In women, we're doing maybe three injections. In men, usually it's two. And then afterwards, there's really very little downtime. There's sometimes like mild swelling or mild bruising for a day or two, but it's actually very little needles, very low risk, and very simple procedures. Excellent. And what can I expect? Or if I were a man or a woman, what can I expect right after? And also how, how long do the effects last? Is this something that I may have to repeat annually? Or is this something that will actually really be very helpful for quite a few years? It depends. A lot of people will repeat at, at a year or two years, but a lot of it depends on where you are in your, with how old you are, how healthy you are, what you're doing to stay healthy. You can imagine that if you're healthier and younger and or younger, then, you know, you're going to have more lasting results because your body is not, it's just not aging as fast. And the aging process obviously is not going to be, it's not great for any of our organs, including our sexual organs. So that comes into play. Some people will just come in once and they're good for, for years. It really depends on where they're coming from. And in terms of what to expect, I, we give them tools to take, to use at home as well. Like for instance, for men, I'll give them a penis pump to help to get increased blood flow and oxygen as they're healing. And that helps. And women, I give them an intravaginal red light therapy device. That is, you just mentioned, you mentioned red light before. It's the same red light that you're using for, we're using for skin or hair or mitochondrial optimization elsewhere, but it goes inside and it's fantastic. It is really great for just improving blood flow and sensation and, and lubrication and things like that. So we have some tools at home like that, that we use as well. And then just make sure that they're also getting their hormones checked and do you know, the other maintenance stuff. Um, but usually it's two or three months before we start to see improvements. 
Mm, great. And tell me more about this intravaginal red light device. I actually have never heard about this. No, I, you should know. I'm super, I really this. I have a infrared sauna at home. It has a red light pillar in it. I usually use it quite a few times per week. I'm a huge fan of this. But so tell me about yeah. this one here. What is it like? Something you also are involved with? Does it come from another company? What? Oh, yeah, it's not my company. I don't have an involvement. I've been, but I've used them for years. You can actually just buy them. Like these are not medical devices. These are just wellness devices. So the company that I've used is called Joylux, J-O-Y-L-U-X. And again, I have no affiliation, but they make a good product and you can just buy a little device. And it it's it's like, a, I tell people it feels like an intravaginal, like hot stone massage. Like it warms up. And it's, if you can buy, it vibrates a little bit and you just, it's very relaxing and it's, it's, it's very easy to use. And I, I think that it's a really good tool, especially in the like perimenopausal, menopausal group when we're trying to just in increase blood flow, increase mitochondrial energy production and keep those cells healthy. It sounds absolutely wonderful. It's warm. It's it is. It's great. With that. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. I have one and sometimes I'll, I'll use that at the same time. I have a red light therapy, like wraparound mask thing that I'll put on and I'll turn on my white noise and just lay in my bed. And it's like this 30 minutes of, I just feel like I'm like from head to toe, like I'm getting all tuned up. <laughs> Fabulous. And something I've really been loving and I've been observing this over the last maybe two to three years or so that... A lot of the female gear newsletters that I subscribe to and lifestyle newsletters, usually they are have become so wonderfully outspoken about promoting women's wellness under which also certainly something like this device would fall under, but also sexual pleasure, which is part of sexual wellness and health. And I love seeing this development where especially younger generations, it's totally normal for them where Five or 10 years ago, people would have been still hushed about it. And it's just really lovely to see and so necessary. With regards to this particular device, so what are all the kinds of positive health effects it may have? So some people will notice improvement in stress urinary incontinence. So if you have if you cough or sneeze and jump and you have a little bit of urine leakage, if it's not too bad, then um, devices like this could be helpful. Certainly it can be helpful also just for increasing um, vaginal lubrication, increasing you know, sensitivity in the area. And now these are, this is, again, it's a wellness device. And so they, they can't make any medical claims. Like they can't say it's going to fix something. Worst case scenario, you get a nice nap and it feels good and you're just relaxing for a little bit. But I do think it's a nice adjunctive tool to use, especially if you're doing injections or other therapies where you're really just trying to increase the blood flow so that you can have healing in that area. For sure. And is there a limit to how often you ought to use it per week? Because, for example, the red light pillar that I have, I'm not supposed to use it more than three, four times a week for a certain amount of minutes just to make sure it stays within the realm of the effects that I actually yeah. do want to cause. Yeah, usually it's about 12 minutes at a time. And you're, I think the instructions are three to four times a week, just like your own panel. And you're not going to be, it's not going to hurt you to do more than that, but that's what the settings are like every other day or so. Great. Thank you for teaching me about something I didn't know before. Yeah, get, you have to go try it and let me know how it goes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I am I love that. And I love guinea pigging and trying out new things and then sharing it with all those I care about and also on this podcast and other channels. Sexual health is connected to so many interesting things. You also mentioned, of course, the mental health and, and spiritual health. So I I would love to know from you, Looking at our culture and seeing how, on the one side, so many things are really hypersexualized, 
And at the same time, we don't seem to have a normal discourse about sexuality, especially healthy sexuality. We have pornography, which I'm not demonizing pornography. I do find it problematic, however, if let's say pornography is this thing, but we make the entirety of the sexual experience out of something that should just be a facet. Yeah. And it influences how we think, how we act, how we connect with others. So are there any other interventions that may not be medical that you share with the people who come to you for sexual health that are more in the vein of spiritual or psychological guidance that you would share with us? I That's not really my area of expertise. So certainly I do recommend working with sex therapists or behavioral therapists, or if you have, certainly if you have any sort of trauma, but even if you don't, even if it's just relationship issues or self-esteem or depression, there's so many things that play into sexual health, PTSD. I did a talk uh, recently for some, for some combat veterans and I was looking up the statistics and 85% of combat veterans who have had like a traumatic brain injury and PTSD have erectile dysfunction. They have sexual dysfunction. And these are young guys. And so there's all these different things. Some of them are physical, some of them are mental that can play into whether or not you have a satisfying sexual relationship. So I do have, I have teams that I refer out to like for sex therapists and behavioral therapists and things like that. Yeah, I'm a big advocate too of just doing things to take care of yourself and take care of your mental health, whether that's, for me, it's going out in nature and going on long walks. Like I love it. Leave your phone in your pocket and just have it be quiet. And I talk to the moose and the grizzly bears. And like, so to me, it's nature and just walking around. But so maybe, but maybe it's breath work, maybe it's cold plunges, maybe it's, there's all these different things, these tools that we have to take care of ourselves. And I think that this is very important for sexual health to utilize these stress reduction tools as well. Yes. And to understand that everything is connected. You actually have touched upon in the past on this really interesting connection between skin health and sexual health. <laughs> and that intersection seems to be also a unique aspect of your practice. Could you elaborate on how our sexual health can have a synergistic effect on our overall appearance? Yeah, it's so funny that I started doing, when I started doing hormones and doing getting into this field, I had a lot of patients who would come back after the first few months of getting hormones and they're starting to feel better and they're starting to get over the, like the, just the initial, they're getting out of survival mode. And they would always then ask me for help with either their sexual, their sex life or their skin. And they're like, this is, I'm ready to move to one of these things. And so I started looking into what are the things that I can offer them and what are the things they can do on their own to improve skin health and sexual health. And the overlap between these two things that you wouldn't think have much in common was, it's pretty big. You know, it's everything from your diet, obviously it's going to affect both your nutrition, your exercise, your mindset, but then even a lot of the same therapies, like things like, for instance, estrogen is fantastic for sexual health in a woman who's perimenopausal, menopausal, but it's also excellent for your skin health because estrogen works in the same way. And then they're like, to your question, certainly I think that when you are happy, when you feel good about yourself, whether that's because you're sexually fulfilled or you're fulfilled in your business life or your friendships or whatever it is, I think that we see that on your skin. You have less acne, you have less breaking out, you have more glow. And so there's definitely an overlap, not just in terms of treatments and therapies and prevention, but just in terms of how you look and how you feel about yourself. 100%, Amy. And uh, talking about estrogen, what's your take on estriol cream? 
Yeah, I think that the either low-dose estradiol or estriol creams where they work locally, so you could put them on your face or wherever, actually, they're great. And I think there's definitely some studies that support them for anti-aging purposes in, in older women and by older, more closer to menopause. Younger women have enough estrogen, so the estro- loss of estrogen is not the problem. But once you get into that late perimenopause where estrogen is really starting to go down and certainly menopause where it's basically gone, that the local estrogens or estro- estriol can be effective helping reduce wrinkles and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Excellent. What I'm really liking about this whole universe of sexual health, it's really quickly evolving and there's so many new treatments and understanding coming up. And uh, I'd like to know from you, what emerging treatments or concepts are you most excited about? One of the things I'm excited about is this idea of being able to track sexual health in a different way. And there's a few different uh, things like for men, for instance, there's a couple of companies now that are making almost like Fitbits for the penis that you'd wear, you wear at night. There's one called FirmTech and one called Adam Sensor, and I don't have an affiliation with them, but it's a device that men would wear around the base of the penis and it keeps track of overnight erections. And so it tells you how long they're lasting, how firm they are, because we know that overnight erections are a strong indicator of cardiovascular health. And so this is a great warning sign, right? If you start to see that your erections are not as strong or you're not having them, then this is a big warning flag. Hey, you got to do something. There are companies I know doing research on, and on developing similar tools for women. So far, it's very difficult to look at blood flow and to really quantify blood flow. Blood flow to the clitoris, for instance, is the same same kind of organ as the penis, but it's very difficult to measure blood flow there. But there's some companies looking at, should we put like a pulse oximetry on there where we look at pulse ox? Like how, what's the best way to do that? So I'm excited to see, hopefully in the next few years, better ways to measure sexual health. Great. That is super interesting, Amy. And I think somebody who really brought that to the forefront of the cultural discourse is Brian Johnson, who has been extremely outspoken about measuring his nighttime erections. And what I really like about him, he and his team are super smart. They They are. They know what they're doing, also how they're messaging it. What I really like about him is the very calm and educated way he talks about these things and where he also just sets straight, look, we need to talk about these things in a normal way and not have shame around them. And whether it's measuring your nighttime erections, whether it's how you poop, to say in less elegant language, or your urine flow and how fast it is or how not fast, these are all important things to talk about. And when people are ashamed and don't dare talk about it with their friends. They don't go to doctors to talk about it. That's when really serious health conditions can result out of years of suppressing, even talking or acknowledging something. Yeah. So it's really time to lose this mis- misplaced shame with regards yeah. to the topics. That's Yeah, that's one of my biggest things. Like, I love going out and speaking um, about sexual health and sexual um, well, I, I call it sexponential medicine, um, but this exponential, the way that sex, sexual health actually can exponentially increase and improve other areas of health. And then just what are the modalities that are, that are available to you to improve sexual health? So I have uh, sexponential medicine is one of my favorite things to talk about because a lot of people don't like talking about it, but it turns out that when you start talking about it, and if you do it in a matter of fact way, in a fun way, and make it a little bit like people do care They just don't want to be the ones to raise their hands and say, hey, I'm having problems with my erections or, hey, my libido is low. Like they just, they want to, they want to have someone else just tell them about it first. So I think it's important to talk about it. Absolutely. And to move away from this idea that we have to function like robots, whether we're men or women, 
and to acknowledge that sometimes it's a very natural reaction of our psyche, of our body to a dysfunctional world, whether it's because there's too many toxins, whether it's because there's experiences out there that we encounter that weigh heavy on us, like what you just shared about the veterans with PTSD. Well, there's our hormones being disrupted, hormonal balance being disrupted. And there's so much science even around having an orgasm and how beneficial that is to you on so many levels, your mental health, uh, your immunity, all kinds of things. Yeah. There were some studies in men. It's, it's the stronger evidence in men, but there's been two big studies. One was out of Wales and one was here in the U.S. in the last 10 or 15 years that showed that men who have sex and when they looked at orgasms, when they looked at actual like intercourse, essentially men who have sex more than at least one to two times a week had 50% lower all-cause mortality rate compared to men who are not sexually active. And that was over like a six to 10 year period. So, and again, it's not necessarily causal. It could be, there's a correlation, but there's obviously a lot that goes into that. But at the very least, we should be asking patients about their sex lives and not just like in a sort of perfunctory way. Like we should be asking these questions because it's at least a predictor on some level of overall health, including emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, behavior, relationship, like all of these things can be put together into sexual health. And so when you're having a sexual problem, it's an indicator that something else is going on. And so we should be asking these questions. Percent, Amy. And has a similar study, a six to 10 year study actually been done on women or has there, as per usual, been just put the focus on men? In women, it is a lot, it's a little bit more confusing. And to answer your question, not that I've seen, there was an interesting study in the 80s that was men and women that was published in, I think, 82. And what they did was they looked at the at the 22 different factors that were contributing to longevity in someone's life, their diet, their blood pressure, like all these things. And what they found was interesting. They found that for men, the quantity of sex they were having was related to longevity. So if you were having more sex, those men were living longer. For women, it was the quality of sex that they were having. It was whether they were enjoying it, whether it was pleasurable, that was related to longevity. For men, it's a little bit different measurement. And this is, unfortunately, we need more information. But I think that for women, we're a little bit more complicated. It's not just about amount of sex. It's about, are we actually enjoying it? Are we, do we feel connected? Are we feeling, is it a really good experience for us? But more, we have to, a lot more we need to learn. 100%. And I would certainly hope that more studies will be launched that also have a focus on women. I personally don't need a study when I look at all of my different girlfriends and I know which ones have really fulfilling sex lives and which ones don't. It's obvious. It's <laughs> not just in their moods. It's the glow of their skin. It's their energy. It's their vibrancy. It's what their focus and life. And it, yeah. <laughs> I don't need even need a study for that. <laughs> like it's so clear. Yeah. Gosh. And to move back to skin health or the actually aesthetics in general, your work at your clinic has actually been pivotal in blending that aesthetics with regenerative medicine. And I'd like to learn more about how you envision the future of aesthetic treatments evolving with advancements in regenerative technologies. Yeah, we've, you know, I we do we do stem cell injections um, of the face. We do you know stem cells with micro microneedling, exosomes, like all of these uh, different types of uh, regenerative therapies. And I I think that we're seeing more and more. Really, in the last uh, three or four years, we've just been seeing more doctors, including like more sort of 
traditional doctors starting to embrace these therapies. The stem cell therapies initially were studied in skin for wound healing. And that's what that's where it started. They, they were finding that applying stem cells or injecting stem cells to wounds was helping them heal faster. And then somewhere along the way, year, you know, years ago, someone said, okay, what if we apply these things to normal skin? Could we trick the skin into thinking that it needed to heal and it, did it help it to regenerate and look, look more youthful? So I think now we're seeing more and more doctors doing combinations of things like you do a laser, but then you do the stem cell injections and, and topical applied exosomes afterwards to increase your healing and to have a better result. So we're seeing kind of combinations of these things. There are certainly home products now that are available that have growth factor, like stem cell growth factors. They don't have actual stem cells. And so if you see something that says we have stem cells in our product, it is there are no stem cells, there are no live cells, but there are growth factors, proteins, exosomes, these sort of signaling mo molecules that are in some of the home um, skincare brands now. And I think we'll see more and more of that and more and more products that are specifically made for skin signaling um, in terms of not just generic stem cells, but stem cells that have been uh, manipulated in some way to really increase your production of collagen and elastin hyaluronic acid. So it's pretty exciting. There's a lot of stuff down the pipeline that's coming out. Yes. And what I personally find exciting about that is that skin health is also correlated to all over health. It's our largest organ. And if we can keep our skin healthy, it has a downflow effect also on other organs. So it's not just a vanity project, so to speak. And there's really fascinating companies out there providing uh, skincare, or rather they call it skin supplementation, for example, certain peptides that will help to get rid of senescent cells in your skin, for example. And yeah, it's really, we're at a new frontier here where we're not just slapping paint onto a moldy wall anymore, but we're actually <laughs> fixing the wall. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And a lot of people, they're still stuck on the, if we make a quick detour into Hollywood, a lot of people who are observing this from the outside and consume media and celebrity news, they still think, oh yeah, it's the Botox and it's the fillers and sure that's there. But really what people who have the access financially and also the connections have been doing for many years is things such as stem cells and exosomes. That's why a certain male actor who just turned 60 years old looks 20 years younger, Benjamin Button effect. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's true. And, and there are, stem cells are still pretty expensive, unfortunately, for the average person, but there are other things that are much more easily accessible. I, there are supplements that could be great for skin, like oral supplements. I One of my companies is a is a, it's a longevity supplement company called Hop. And we have a product that has five or six different ingredients in there that when taken, they're taken orally, but they have known skin benefits, including hyaluronic acid, for instance, which you apply to your skin topically and it helps with moisture, but it doesn't actually help with moisture for all that long because you're not getting it in, inside of your body. So if you take that as a pill, you can actually have improvements in moisture better than if you apply it orally. So there are some things like that. Spermidine is great for skin. Dihydroberberine is great for skin. So there's all these ingredients now that we know about that you can take them orally and over a few weeks to months, you can see huge increases in skin health and you apply that plus your good skincare, plus some of these other more advanced kind of in-office techniques. And I think that we can make a big dent in how fast we're aging. Hmm, super. And I want to hear more about your company. Can I'll put it in the show notes as well. Can you give us the web link? Yeah, absolutely. It's, so it's HOP, which stands for Human Optimization Project. So HOP, the link is hopbox.life. 
And it's a it's a monthly subscription box. It's got 19 different longevity promoting ingredients, all just in five little pills. And it's really made for people who are on the move, who don't have time to do their own research, but they want to have something that's very effective to address all of the cellular causes of aging. So those 12 hallmarks of aging. So we're focusing on all the things that are driving aging to improve energy and mood and skin and sleep and all of that from the inside though. But yeah, hopbox.life is the link and I'll send that to you as well. Fantastic. Great. And how long do people usually take these supplements uh, before they notice a difference? Some people will notice improvements in energy, even just in the first few days. That's the first thing we start to hear. We've got some we got some B vitamins and we've got a lot of other nicotinamide, riboside, and NAD boosters and alpha ketoglutarate. Some of these things that are going to give you like a nice boost in energy as they're increasing mitochondrial function. And then some things take longer. Things like improved skin health and, and improved hair health tends to take more like two or three months because it just, these things are always a lot slower process. But we, it's a cute little box and we send it to you every month. And it's, it's just a very easy way to get those very sort of high end, high tech longevity ingredients that you can't get enough of in your diet. That's awesome. I will totally look into that. And I'm, yes, I will actually try it and also report back here on the podcast. I love trying things like that. Oh, good. Yes. I would love for you to do that. Yes, absolutely. And with talking about spermidine, do, does your box also contain, the supplements also contain spermidine? And it does. Yes. Yes. We have a very pure form of spermidine. It's called pyrimidine. It's by NNB and they make a super concentrated form. So you're, you only need a few milligrams a day versus hundreds of milligrams of the sort of wheat germ variety. So it's essentially the same thing, but really concentrated. So what we did with Hotbox is we we found the, are our favorite suppliers of different ingredients. So like we use, instead of berberine, we use dihydroberberine, which is less irritating for your stomach, better bioavailability. Same thing with curcumin. So we picked out our favorite brands and then just put them all in a little pack so you don't have to go out. And, I had 20 bottles of supplements on my nightstand and I was like having to open them all up and they were running out and it was like a whole thing. So I was like, why don't I just make this easy for people? So that's where it stemmed from. Oh, that is excellent. And I relate. I have <laughs> people walk into my kitchen and they see the middle island, which is supposed to be for cooking, where it's just stacked with supplements. <laughs> They're like, oh my God, that's a lot of supplements. I'm like, oh, you haven't even seen that pantry. And so I love whatever from the many years of your work, your research, your resources to distill something like that, to make it easy for people. I, 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 I love that. And so people can benefit from your expertise. That is, is really super. Uh, quick question about the berberines. A lot of people uh, are intrigued or even taking metformin for the purported health benefits. And there's, of course, quite a few studies on that. Then there's people say you might not want to mess with metformin because it could have a certain effect on mitochondria and it's better to take berberine instead. What's your take on that? Yeah, I really, I really like berberine better than metformin for people, unless you're a diabetic, even if you're a diabetic, that's a whole different ballgame. But both metformin and berberine work on similar, like the AMPK kinase enzyme. They both are going to help keep your blood sugar down. They're going to both help with metabolism. They have a lot of the same benefits and same pathways they work on. 
but it, berberine doesn't cause some of the same problems with metformin we worry about. You're not able to um, build muscle as well uh, when you're taking metformin. So that's one of the concerns is that you can, it affects muscle hypertrophy. And it can also, there's some other sort of less common side effects that we can see with metformin. And we just don't see those things with berberine. So I, I think berberine, I think is better for probably the general public who's just trying to be healthy. But certainly if you have diabetes and you really need to get specific dosing and things like that, then metformin can be a great option. Absolutely. And I personally have shied away from metformin. I have uh, friends who take it. I find that particularly if you're over a certain age where it's already harder for you to build and maintain muscle, yeah. it's just not a smart thing to do. Because especially as we get older, maintaining a healthy muscle tone is super important. Uh, yeah. Super and that was my, that's exactly me. I was taking metformin for a little while. I do take rapamycin and I do take a carbose, but I stopped the metformin because I'm already pretty lean and I need more muscle. Like I just, I need to do whatever I can to build muscle because that's going to be the biggest problem for me, I think. So rapamycin, is it true? I heard that in animal models, it lowers the immunity. Is that also true for humans? What are your experiences with it? So it's an interesting drug. It, you know, it initially was, it's FDA approved for use in organ transplant and people where you're, where you are trying to reduce your immune responsiveness. But that's if you're taking it every day at a relatively high dose. The longevity dose, which again, it's still experimental and I'm not saying you should do it, but the dosing that's used to try to improve health span and lifespan is only either once a week or once every two weeks. And so you're not taking it every day. And actually what happens then is it doesn't cause immune suppression. And in some studies, it actually causes a more robust immune response because you, you're you almost like, the, the, the thought is that you're when you take it, you may be getting rid of some of the immune cells, but then you're building up new ones. So it's almost like create, a way to create a healthier um, immune system. But we have, there's tons and tons of animal data that show that rapamycin is one of the best drugs out there for increasing lifespan. We don't have the human data yet, but it's, I think it's, it's reasonable to take if you have someone who knows how to check your blood markers and make sure that you're on a, a good dose for you. Oh, absolutely. And if I may ask, obviously it's an individualized dose, but what is the dose that you are on? So I was doing six milligrams a week and I just a few weeks ago start moved to a just twice a month dose, which is a little bit higher. I'm doing 10 milligrams twice a month and I'm still trying to figure out what the best dose is. I'm not checking my blood levels because I hate giving blood, <laughs> but so it's a little hard to say. The side effects, sometimes you can get some sores in your mouth and that's when I get a sore, I feel like that's a little bit of a high dose for me. So I'll back off a little bit, but I've been on this dose, this new dose just for a, a couple of months. So we'll see how it goes. Great. I hope you put out some content and share with us how that's going. Yeah, I will. You were also mentioning a third, I think, compound or supplement you were taking. Oh, a carbose is the other. It's a prescription medication, but that's the other drug. It's actually a diabetes drug, but it's been used off-label. And it was one of the other ones that increased lifespan in the, the, the mouse ITP studies, which are the big studies on mice that look and see, they check different drugs and supplements to see, can we actually increase lifespan? And a carbose, the way it works is interesting. It prevents the, the rapid breakdown of, of complex sugars and carbohydrates. And it doesn't prevent it forever, but it slows it down. 
And so you have less of a sugar spike after you eat, whether it's a high carb meal or sugar. So you don't have that big sugar spike. And that, and then you end up having some of those carbohydrates make their way down into your large intestines and it feeds the healthy bacteria in your large intestines. So you have, they're not sure if the benefits are from the low sugar, the lowering of the sugar, or from the improving of the gut microbiome. It's probably both but there, it has a couple of different mechanisms of action. So it's that you take it before you eat something, especially if there's going to be higher carbohydrate intake. Interesting. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing all of this. So yeah. now, of course, these medications for a lot of people are either difficult to obtain or they may not want to go there. You shared about the hot box. So this is great. You also shared about red light. What are some other ways individuals can support their body's natural stem cell production and outside of these prescriptions or clinical therapies? Yeah, I think good old fashioned healthy lifestyle is never to be underrated. Exercise is very good for stem cell production. There's some research that shows intermittent fasting may be helpful. I personally don't do a lot of fasting because again, I'm more to me, I want to I build muscle and I think that missing too many meals is maybe not the best idea, but I do think it can be helpful for some people. Getting sleep, keep yep. keeping your stress down, like all the things that your grandmother told you to do, like these are things that you should always start with and that's going to help support your stem cell production. It's going to support your mitochondria. It's going to support your telomeres, like all the things that drive aging. If you start with a good foundation, you're making good headway. 100%. And another thing, of course, is nutrition. I'm curious to learn from you. Are there any dietary recommendations you find yourself often giving to patients seeking anti-aging treatments? Yeah, I think that in general, I like a diet, kind of like the Mediterranean diet, something that you're going to have some fruits and vegetables, 25 to 30 grams of fiber every day. We know from multiple studies is strongly associated with less disease. And I think higher protein intake is probably better, even though there are a lot of, there's a lot of debate in the longevity world. Like some people are very much like you need less protein because protein drives aging. And then some people are like, no, we need more protein because protein builds muscle, which is anti-aging. So there's, that's actually a big debate, but I tend to be more on the more protein is better. Some, something closer to about a gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight a day. So that's a lot of protein, right? <laughs> and you want to break that up throughout the day, but protein and then healthy fats. I think some people avoid uh, fats because they were, we were taught 30 years ago not to eat fat, making sure you get your omega-3 fatty acids and all of your good healthy fats and just moderation and not, I think, avoiding alcohol if possible. I drink a little bit, but I try not to do it. I don't do it every day and it's a special occasion thing. So I don't have a strict diet that I adhere to, but I think that some basic caveats of just eat healthy, avoid processed foods, things like that, it goes a long way. And it resonates with me too, what you mentioned about the high protein. I personally feel better with a high protein. I actually also, it's about a gram per pound. And that's what I really feel good with. And it's not yeah. even that hard to do if you have some healthy, easy, even drinkable sources. Yeah. So like you've got to be chowing down on tons of protein containing food, no matter what your diet is. And if we look at integrating physical fitness into a holistic anti-aging regimen, I would love to know what your recommendations are and also if there are some common mistakes people tend to make. Yeah, I think with physical fitness, it's important to focus on several different aspects. Certainly, you want to get your high-intensity interval training, get your heart rate up, and get your VO2 up, and the things that go hard and fast, but just for short periods of time. So I like Tabata training or the Norwegian 4x4 training or some of these programs where you're going really hard for a few minutes, and then you take a little break, and then you go really hard. 
um, but they're short workouts. I think that definitely has a role, but I also think that the more zone two type um, exercises where you're going moderate, mild to moderate exercise for 45 minutes or an hour um, is also good. But then the other thing that is not talked about as much is, are you working on your stability and your mobility? Because especially for women and especially after menopause, if you fall and break your hip, which unfortunately my mom did a few months ago, it is devastating. And if you have not been working on your strength, obviously strength training as well, strength, mobility, flexibility contributes to a fall. And hip fracture has a 25% one-year mortality rate. So if you fall and break your hip, especially if you're older, you have a 25% chance of dying within that first year. And you, we have to talk to women, especially about integrating strength training into their week and this mobility flexibility stuff. Oh gosh, yes. And Amy, that, that hits close to home. My own mother actually also within the last 14 months broke, fell, just fell standing, was taking care, watering plants, fell, oh, broke her yeah, hip. Mine and, too. Oof, which was a huge wake up call. And she's in Germany. They are more conventional about the kind of recovery therapies and of course the medical interventions they offer. So this is really personal to me. What have you actually recommended to your own mom? to get better and also be better. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's really hard once you have osteoporosis, it's hard to rebuild the scaffolding. It's not about just taking extra calcium or just taking extra. It, the calcium and vitamin D and those kind of things, they can help before you hit menopause and before you start really losing bone. But once you've lost that, it's the collagen and the support, the resiliency of the bone, the bend of the bone, that part is very hard to get back. And one of the tricky things about osteoporosis is, and I've been reading a lot about it because I'm at high risk as well, but one of the tricky things is that it's very difficult to even know, like you can do a DEXA scan, you can get your bone, bone mineral density, you can see how, how heavy it is, but that doesn't actually tell you your fracture risk uh, sometimes because that is, that's basically looking at like the calcium in your bone, but it's not looking at the bend and the resiliency of your bone. So the biggest thing I can tell women is starting in obviously weight training, exercising, eating healthy, reducing, it's a metabolic disease. So do all of the things like that, but starting in late perimenopause to menopause, getting on estrogen therapy is the best thing you can do for your bones because there's nothing else like estrogen that prevents bone loss. So get on it, stay on it, don't get off of it, and your bones will be much happier for it. Excellent. I'm I'm a huge fan of bioidentical hormone therapy, replacement therapy, and obviously go to someone who really knows what they're doing, get your labs done, know what your baseline is, know what may need tweaking, and this is also something that has just come up within the recent maybe two to three years that uh, perimenopause is actually talked about and how early that can hit yeah. in a woman's lifetime. So yeah, I'm hearing from you that you also have a positive take on these therapies. What are some of the key factors that you would suggest to people consider considering if they're thinking about embarking on that journey? First of all, I think that every woman should think about it. I think it's important not whether or not you have symptoms. It doesn't matter if you don't have hot flashes or you don't have... Sometimes the old thinking was we only use hormones if you have symptoms and then we only use them in the smallest doses for the shortest period of time because they're bad, they're dangerous. And the truth is that is completely wrong, that we, it was misinterpretation of a study from 20 years ago that these hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, they're not harmful. They, you can't have side effects if you have the wrong dose, but they're not harmful. 
uh, when they're done the right way. So the first lesson is whether you have symptoms or not, I think if you are, once you hit menopause, they don't want your periods have stopped for sure to think about getting on hormones. The only real contraindications are if you have, if you personally had breast cancer recently, then there's a period of time that we wait before thinking about putting you on them. But other than that, there really are not a lot of contraindications. So that's the first thing. And then the other thing that I think, and I've evolved my thinking in the last 10 years, is you want to get on a pretty good dose. It used to be that we would do like these little transdermal through the skin doses, and they were like these little baby doses. And those doses are not, you don't want a little bit of it. You These are really powerful molecules, but you want to take enough that they're effective, making sure you have a doctor who knows um proper doses, knows what to look for in the labs, knows is not trying to minimize your contact to these hormones, but is thinking about them in the correct way, which is that these are powerful, positive um, molecules that we want to use and then stay on them. Really, there's no reason to stop unless you're having problems. Indeed, I agree 100%, Amy. And again, everybody is different, but let's just to get into the ballpark, what kind of dosages and via what kind of means administered, whether it's creams or trochees or injections, are you talking about? So I've actually changed again my thinking in the last few years. I've been doing a lot of research, even the last few months, into the cardiovascular protective uh, effects of estrogen specifically. And what I've found is it's interesting in that it, it looks like it's actually oral estrogen pills that are cardioprotective. And that when we've looked at, when they've looked at the transdermals, um, there's something about the transdermal that it doesn't cause the, it doesn't cause your lipids to change in the right direction. So you don't have the improvement in your cholesterol and things like that with transdermal. And you also don't have the reaction of the blood vessels themselves. So when you take an oral estrogen, the blood vessels open up and you get this lovely vasodilation, which improves blood flow and it can help prevent plaque uh, accumulation. But when we give transdermals, you in animal studies, we don't see that vasodilation. And, and I don't know of any transdermal studies that actually have shown prevention of cardiovascular disease. So transdermals can be great for osteoporosis or for pelvic floor or for your symptoms. But when it comes to cardiovascular disease prevention, which by the way, is going, it is, it kills one in three women is cardiovascular disease. That is the number one thing that kills you. It looks like oral estradiol is probably the way to go. So the doses for that, is starting about one and a half to two or three grams, milligrams a day is I think what's the most effective dose to be on. And then I usually prefer an oral micronized progesterone that you take by mouth before you go to bed, 200 milligrams a day to start with. And that's, those two things are foundational. And then if you don't tolerate those for whatever reason, there are other ways to give these hormones, but I actually really have gone to mostly oral. Great. And is there a way to maybe combine both the transdermal and the oral so you can get the benefits of each of these means of administering the... Well, the, the oral gives you the same benefits as the transdermal. It also gives you the cardiovascular benefits. So the oral also gives you the same bones, pelvic floor, skin, joints. Like it's the same. It just, it seems like the oral has more cardiovascular prevention benefits. So you wouldn't need to do both. You could, but there, I don't think there's probably a reason to. Got it. There is a benefit, I think, particularly for women with the testosterone also to uh, take trochees versus the transdermal because it especially if you notice some signs of maybe increased hair growth yeah. or hair loss so it, it's really interesting to see how when you differently administer uh, these medicines these, yeah. these 
hormones, how it can have different effects. Yeah. And I will say that the most important thing is to just different doctors have different opinions. There are some people who are all in on transdermals or some people there. And I don't think necessarily like we have a lot of information, but there's always more to learn. But the most important thing is that you're getting something, that you're taking it, that you're helping to prevent some of this stuff that, that we can prevent by taking estrogen and, and testosterone and progesterone. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And and I think it's it's still... Uh, not as widely spread as it needs to be. Uh, it can be so helpful for women and whether they're starting to go through menopause or women who are experiencing a whole bunch of symptoms. They don't know what it is. They're thinking like, oh, I'm just 41 or I'm 38 and have, and it's actually perimenopause and it's easily mitigated and will make really change the trajectory of their next decades of their mental health, of their physical health, yeah. how to move in the world. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and this is something that really needs to change. You are actually a pioneer in a field that pushes medical, the boundaries of traditional medicine. And I'd love to hear from you as a, a last question, if there's anything you could share where you perhaps may have ventured into uncharted territories in medicine, maybe groundbreaking treatment or uh, a theory that was first met with skepticism, but then proved to be transformative. Mm, that's a great question. Yeah, I've done a lot of things that I experiment on myself a lot first, or myself or my husband. If I'm trying something, it's with one, one of us usually, and then I'll roll it out to other people. And so I feel like I'm, I'm always experimenting on different things. One of the projects that I have recently started on that we're going to be, we're going to be opening some longevity clinics in the summer. And I think that anytime you start talking about longevity, when clinics and franchises and things like that, people are pretty skeptical. What is that? Is it voodoo medicine? Like you're not a real doctor. I've heard all kinds of crazy things from like peers and other people. But I think that people are now finally starting to see that there is an actual science to all of this and that it's not just just random people just making things up like this stem cell medicine, for instance, like this is real science based medicine. And I've been doing it for 10 years. And in the beginning, people thought I was crazy. And now they're like, oh, tell me more about that. So there's a lot of these kinds of things where where I I think people in general are starting to come around to there's one there's more than one way to practice medicine and that just because it's not part of the traditional sort of under hospital system doesn't mean it doesn't have validity. Right. And tell us a little more about those clinics you're going to be opening. Yeah, they're called it's called Humanot, uh, like astronaut but with humans. And um it's I'm part of a, a team uh will be opening in Austin and Salt Lake City to start with in um probably in June-ish. Uh where we've been working pretty hard to develop the protocols and things, but and then we'll you know hopefully roll out from there. But it's pretty exciting. We're we're using combining all the technologies with all of the protocols, but then trying to make it more available to regular people, not just your super high-end wealthy people. So really trying to make things like rapamycin and acarbos and stem cells and advanced diagnostics more available to just regular people who want to do better and be healthier. Super. Please come to LA soon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll be there eventually. <laughs> And you've shared quite a few things about yourself. There's one question I ask each guest on the podcast, and that is about a practice that has enhanced their lives, whether it's mentally, spiritually, or physically, or all of them. Could be something you've been doing for a long time, something new you've discovered. Is there something you could share with us? My The biggest thing for me is um, going out in nature and walking around. Uh, if I'm feeling stressed, if I'm feeling anything I'm feeling, I if I can get out there, by myself for 30 minutes um, in the woods, 
I come back a different person. So I need to remind my, it's cold and snowy here right now. So I need to remind myself of that sometimes, but that is the biggest, that's the biggest thing for my mental health that, that helps. Mm, wonderful. Thank you for sharing, Amy. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I have 10,000 more questions, but maybe <laughs> this was really delightful and insightful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll send you all the links to everything I talked about. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. <laughs>